for the past, uh, I think it's two years or possibly longer than two years, scattered over a number of Wednesdays. Uh, we've been going through shining the light of death on life. Uh, there's been sometimes quite a bit of a break between talks. Uh, during that time, and I think it is at least a couple of years, uh, a lot of ground was covered. And then again, uh, very little. There's many, many ways of saying uh, we don't have forever, wake up. Just a lot of different ways in which uh, the Buddha put it. Uh, how many people, are there any people here who have not been to any of the talks, any of these talks? Oh, okay. Um, hmm. Okay, this is the last one. <laughs> thank, thank God. How much of this stuff can you take? Um, so maybe we can party on after this talk. What was used for the talks, I think what would make the most sense is a, a kind of a review, can't say a summary, but a review with uh, selectively about some of the perhaps key points of why we bother to reflect on aging, sickness, and death, why we have so many methods and techniques uh, to arouse uh, the sense of these inevitable uh, events in our life. Uh, and we use a very simple framework, those of you who have been to a few of them. Uh, whether it's a legend or historically accurate, it's still a teaching that has um, been carried on in, in the Buddhist uh, tradition for these thousands of years, uh, where apparently in the story the Buddha was quite coddled, shielded, uh, from aging, sickness, and death, uh, because his father wanted him to become a king and not a great spiritual leader, and he was afraid that if he was exposed to suffering, that that might um, ignite or open up uh, a tendency that he had, according to an astrologer, uh, to gravitate towards spiritual matters and not be interested in, in being a king or a leader of that level. And so he hoped that by protecting him this would happen. And as the story goes, and perhaps most of you know the story, uh, at a certain point the Buddha, out of curiosity, strayed beyond the palace grounds and came in contact with an, uh, an old person, a dead person, rather a sick person, a dead person, and then very significant, a fourth person, is on different occasions, uh, a yogi, a meditator, uh, who was uh, contemplating under a tree. And so we've been going through that framework, and, uh, including reflections that have been used since the time of the Buddha and are used even today in at least the monasteries I've been at. Uh, they're given to people pretty early on, uh, to monks, nuns, and lay people, to reflect on, to reflect on the fact that it's inevitable that each one of us must age. There are no exemptions to this one. 
we're subject to that uh, lawfulness. Each one of us uh, must at some time grow sick. Uh, there's usually a, a question, well, what if you get, if you get killed, die earlier? Of course, you know, I'm just in general, most people uh, know sickness, and very often the sickness is, uh, is a prelude to death. Uh, and all of us must die, and so you reflect on that, that you were not exempt from this. In fact, uh, when you do that, I think it's changing in our culture in the West. Uh, but for quite some time, uh, death was something, and perhaps it's still strong, was something put up way down the pike, way down there that we know is going to happen, it's obvious that it's going to happen, but not for quite some time. Maybe even to me. Maybe even to you. Uh, it's an Italian proverb which says that death, uh, happen, death comes to everyone, possibly even to me. <laughs> yeah. Whereas other imagery I think would be more appropriate, more accurate, uh, that we're walking hand in hand with death. Life and death proceed together. In fact, uh, if you want to make it even more graphic, and experiential, death is living right inside of us right at this moment. It's not out there. Now, some t we may die because of accidents, and that's a, what is called an untimely death. But no matter what, even, no matter how much bread and circus you funnel down your throat, no matter how many yoga asanas you master, how much pranayama you do, and I do all those things, sorry, at a certain point, uh, there's something in the lawful, it's lawful, but it's in us. So death is right here with us at this moment. And it's something that sooner or later uh, unfolds and it affects each and every one of us. There are no exemptions. The entire planet, everyone on this planet at a certain point, uh, even in this wonderful millennium, 2000, etc., everyone will be gone. Hopefully populated by other people, but we're not sure. So this is, uh, cuts through everything. It has nothing to do with, uh, with wealth or where you're from, third world, first world, second world, man, woman, wise, foolish. We're all in this together. And that was um, one teaching that was emphasized, that the title, Shining the Light of Death on Life, those of you who knew may need a little bit of explanation. I hope it becomes clear as the evening unfolds. Um, Essentially, what this is all about, what uh, these talks and reflections, and for me, the most interesting part were the questions and answers. People ask really challenging and good questions which have to do with their lives, and uh, this is very practical. It's not uh, spitting out philosophic themes and, and leaving them there. Um, I know there's a tremendous interest in the question, is there life after death, and it's even on talk shows now. Seems to be less. It was a point where it was feverish. You know, everyone was good, the tunnel and the light. You know, everyone was reporting that there is life after death. And, uh, my question is: Is there any life before death? <laughs> and that's essentially what it's about. You know, uh, what are we doing with this very precious thing that's been given to us? Not even a thing. What are we doing with our lives? And so, shining the light of death on life. Uh, has many values in terms of reflecting on aging, sickness, and death. Speaking in general now. 
at the very least, it can flush out certain fears and anxieties that we have. Now, because you're here, I have to assume that it's obvious to you that that's valuable. Uh, but it isn't obvious to everyone. It's not obvious to my brother-in-law. You know, when he wanted to know what uh, I told him, he said, well, why would you want to do that? I mean, it's ba bad enough we're going to die. You know, or as Woody Allen said, I'm not afraid of death. It's just when it comes, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, and if you intentionally invite this notion of aging, sickness, and death, and there are particular reflections that uh, were given out, hinted at, or suggested how to practice with them, what you might wind up doing is arousing any latent fear, any latent anxiety or apprehension about your, the process of aging in, unto death. And I don't think it is wise to unravel that or reveal that unless you're equipped to know what to do with it once it comes up. And I'm assuming all of you either are practitioners of some uh, form of meditation, uh, some form of dharma, um, and if you're not, uh, you're here at least uh, concerned with possibly starting to meditate. Uh, our training is, is learning how to take the power out of all these troublesome states. Not, and death, of course, is a big one. In fact, you might say that a lot of fears are really just small deaths. And if we can uh, work with the big one, which is our own uh, journey and where it's heading, uh, that can make a lot of other things. Uh, the perspective that it creates can change things dramatically. In the Thai forest tradition, one uh, teaching, very simple teaching that I have found invaluable, it's my way into metta. It's one way into metta is uh, a reflection that's been done for a long time, uh, that all of us are companions in aging, sickness, and death. Now, in the forest tradition, they would do it, uh, the yogis were instructed to do it when they were doing uh, meditation out in the jungle. It really should be jungle tradition, not forest. It's not a forest. You wouldn't want to go to a picnic in some of these places in Thailand, believe me. At any rate, uh, fear was aroused, and sometimes uh, not anymore. This is a destruction of nature, um, there would be a tiger, you know, right there as you're doing walking meditation. And one of the ways in which the yogis, and obviously these were not beginners, yeah, they, weren't, they weren't just told, well, just go out there, do walking meditation. When, if a tiger comes, just look at him and look him in the eye and just realize we're companions in aging, sickness, and death, aren't we? Uh, I, I don't think it would work. But that was... Uh, one of my teachers, uh, Ajahn Mahabhur, went into a fair amount of detail because he'd been in that situation as to how helpful it could be. That is, uh, when you reflect that really you are companions in aging, sickness, and death, it changes uh, your view of not only tigers, but those other tigers, you know, who are in, dressed up as humans, you know, walking around. And so it can really rescue you from the pettiness, from uh, the ways in which the mind becomes very small. Uh, if you get into entanglements, anger, and annoyances with uh, people you work with, or your family, or your friends, uh, that reflection has a way of, of burning right through it. Uh, because every, most things are just trivial, when you put it in that perspective. Uh, if everyone in the world were doing it, I don't see how we could have wars.
I mean, we're all going to we're going to die anyway. Why why bother killing the, the Albanians if you're uh, Serbian or all these other endless animosities? Just be patient. You know, we'll all go anyway. But it doesn't look like that's happening. At any rate, try it sometime. I mean, in very s- simple things, it uh, somehow um, it softens your heart. Uh, and when you realize that we're all in this together, it changes uh, your view towards the other person, no matter what they've done or said. It makes it a little easier to uh, appro- approach them. So one of the values of uh, reflecting on these ideas, uh, meditating on them, take, using some of the techniques, there are formal techniques, obviously I'm not going to be able to go through them, I might hint at a few depending on our time, is that it fleshes out fear and apprehension, uh, some of which may be latent, you may not even know you have it. Most of us do know we have it. We sort of have surface fears and we know there's something even deeper. Uh, I would be amazed if there is a human being who doesn't have this. I haven't met one yet. So that can flush it out, enable you to practice with it, just our Vipassana practice, nothing special. Uh, And you take the power out of it, so that can at least ease your relationship to this whole process that we're implicated in. Um, Other benefits uh, uh, can be, uh, they're not exclusive, They, uh, they go together, they can go together is that uh, you begin to see your priorities in life become reordered almost automatically. If it gets through, I mean, because you can, just being exposed to death or aging or sickness does not arouse the kind of sensibility I'm talking about. It doesn't. If it did, undertakers would all be awakened. They'd all be enlightened. They're not. Have you met any? I have. They're not. And neither would uh, doctors and nurses, they're not particularly enlightened. Sorry, any medical people? I mean, some are, but maybe no more or less than the rest of us. So, we don't get the significance of it, and it, the significance is not just up here, it has to go right in here. And so, meditation practice, when, for example, samadhi, for those of you who are new to the practice, uh, when the mind becomes much more calm and steady, uh, it's more sensitive and it receives just a simple thought like, I'm of the nature to die. Uh, It's inevitable. I'm subject to this law. You you say that thought a few times and then you let it in. Well, if the heart's open, uh, the way in which it's received is very, very different if it just bounces off your intellect and you have the satisfaction of intellectually grasping it and nodding. Yes, that's true. I got Yeah. No, No question about it. Maybe then translating it into your own language, uh, psychological or religious. So, uh, as that starts to become more alive for you, uh, you start to look at your life because you realize you don't have forever. Certain things don't stand up. Ways in which you've been living, uh, they're not working. And you're more, you have more incentive uh, to do something about it, rather than to cope, put up with, delay, etc. You know, we humans are great at that. We can kind of just cope. To me, coping is not the greatest thing. We can put up with a lot, and we can postpone and delay a lot, even when we know exactly what to do. And yet we don't do it. Why not? Why do we not live our understanding? 
Why do we, in a sense, betray ourselves? But we, it seems to be true. If it's not true of you, good, you're fortunate. But most of us uh, need some help there. When you realize you don't have forever, you start to see that certain activities may not be uh, worth your time and effort, or not as much, and others may become more precious, much more. Certainly the people in your life become more precious. If that doesn't happen, then these reflections are uh, not being experienced. Pretty much everyone feels that. So uh, your priorities can change in a good way. I mean, it's for you to do it. I'm not suggesting you uh, convert and become big Buddhists or anything. It's more you have to make your choices. Maybe you'll decide to, uh, when you get your priorities in order to go to Las Vegas, you know, and just uh, sex, drug, and rock and roll. I don't know. But of course, it's a teaching that comes from the Buddha. And I think it's, it's obvious. He's explicit about it. One of the intentions of these kinds of practices is to help us um, realize the vulnerability of life, in a sense, the poignancy of it, and to wake up and, of course, uh, to not go to Las Vegas, but to go to your cushion. I mean, to, to intensify and strengthen your Dharma practice. Uh, so, what you do would be your choice, and having talked to many, many people now over the years, people do uh, reuse their energy in different ways, but uh, one thing that it can help with is giving your practice some oomph, some strength. Uh, the Buddha said that uh, the, uh, the practice of maranasati, or mindfulness of death, uh, all is, uh, in a sense, more powerful than any of the other practices. He said it's like uh, the footprint of the elephant is the largest footprint. Every other footprint fits in it. And uh, maranasati, or mindfulness of death, uh, is the, pra- the practice that's the most fundamental. And, uh, mindfulness is, is our core. That's what we do. That's uh, our staple if you're practicing Vipassana or Zen or Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, but the, you can't escape this. So in Buddhist circles, in Tibetan circles, Tibetans do a lot of it. And there are quite a bit of variation. The Tibetans emphasize rebirth a lot. There's time we can go into that. Uh, Zen, not nearly as much. Theravadan's not as much. Although sometimes, uh, you know, they do too. Sometimes it is, if you do this, you'll be, be reborn as an ant. If you do that, you'll be reborn as a rodent. And uh, modern people uh, start make exiting, going, this isn't what I thought I wanted. I'll try another meditation center. We don't usually talk that way. I mean, literally. You, I don't know, maybe it's true. But I know it's very effective on Thai villagers. I've seen it. <laughs> scares the hell out of them. <laughs> and so it makes them good. good for about 10 minutes. And then. Um, so you, you reorder your priorities. It's a kind of um, the urgency of spiritual life. Um, yesterday on, uh, on the news, on uh, Channel 2, WGBH, they had a, a segment on um, how consumerism is becoming so incredibly powerful now, uh, with so much more money available, and the internet, and you know, you all know all this. Uh, and they were talking about how that is becoming the supreme value, and it's replacing politics, 
other kinds of um, uh, your origin, family tree, social class, uh, how, uh, where you come from, almost anything that people would identify with as this is me, that's important, an important element. It's now little by little being shifted to how much you can consume, and how much you possess and own, uh, of course, uh, money. And then there was a panel arguing or discussing uh, that this is a good thing and this is a terrible thing. And uh, I, of course, I can't help myself now. I always see it from the point of view of Dharma. Uh, the suffering will be the same if you identify with your ethnic group against other ethnic groups. You'll get some of the sense of security and energy from it. And you'll also suffer tremendously, as we're all doing with each other, those who do that to each other. And if you drop that and become, uh, let's say, consumerism, as one person argued, kind of will cut through all that, kind of as if we're going to have now a universal world united by uh, Patagonia. <laughs> I don't know, whatever, whatever you like. Um, but it's just another identification. This has gone on for thousands of years, and you can identify with anything and uh, cause a lot of mischief. What wasn't said, and it was also, there was a, in one person, exaltation, you know, like the consumer thing was ecstatic. Um, and so I saw that, well, don't they understand that it, it could produce the same kind of suffering as people identify with this instead of something else? Then I realized the ecstasy kept going on. Finally, you know, sort of uh, aging sickness and death needed, needed to be there to temper all this a little bit. Uh, because they weren't seeing the limitations of even the most wonderful possessions. See, what is Patagonia? No, it's not Patagonia. <laughs> Ibex. I never heard of it. I don't know if you have. Anyway, it's natural. That's what I like. Um, so that these kinds of uh, ideas and methods and practices uh, can sometimes light a fire under our bun and help us see the urgency of spiritual practice. I mean, each one of us has to see it for ourselves. It's not a new ideology or a new political party to join. Uh, either you're alive to it and you see the primacy of it, how significant it, it, it is. It's not a luxury item. It's uh, very much missing in the world. And we can see the re what the result is of a world that is, lacks this. I'm not down on consumerism. It's a bit out of proportion but it's always been there, always will be there. So that can help, can help a lot. Uh, and now, finally, let's bring all of that together because the deepest message of the, teacher, the teachings of the Buddha is to come to the deathless. That is, even if we don't come to the deathless, deathless is, uh, is there anything really sacred in life? Not sacred created by artisans or by consensus a great church or a great something that is just whether you call it God or truth or nirvana or some people call it the deathless and I'm using that term tonight because of the in the context that we're that we're discussing these things um, that's what makes the most sense because what is suggested I would say in all spiritual teaching but the Buddhist way is that uh, there is something that um, isn't born and, and die doesn't get born and doesn't die. There's something that is, it's sometimes called the birth, it's the deathless or it's called the unborn. If something isn't born, it doesn't die. It doesn't mean it's not there though. Okay, so 
what is suggested is there's a place. It's not merely suggested, it's, we are told, this is something that is central to the path. Whether you call it Buddha nature, or our true nature, our original nature, the nature of mind, fundamental nature, nirvana, empty mind, no mind, Zen mind. Uh, what's being said is we all, it's there in everyone. There's no one who doesn't have it. It's not particularly Buddhist. It's in the nature of things. And uh, the greatest, certainly from a Buddhist point of view, which is about liberation and awakening, awakening is about awakening to that. We have our moments of it, whether we know it or not. And the practice is designed to give us uh, at least a glimpse, and for some of us who are fortunate, although I don't think it comes about just through luck, obviously it doesn't, um, a deep experience of it, which is the greatest protection from the fear of aging, sickness, and death. And the reason that's so is that, and we went through this, let's back up now and go to aging. This body must age. We have some people, we we're well represented tonight, which is nice. Um, those of you who are young, you will get older. You will, you know? It's really true. I mean, uh, and those of us who are older, we were, we were like you once. We really were. Really, it's true. Okay. Uh, and we tend to identify very much with this body with its shape, with its um, health, with its attractiveness, let's say, as culturally agreed upon, what is attractive, handsome, uh, all the aspects of, of, you know, it's too obvious to belabor, you all, you all know that, and with its age. And as we start to age, for some people, it's a tremendous source of suffering, uh, a feeling of uh, uh, we're no good anymore, we're being bypassed. Now, I don't mean this is a mere illusion, because uh, to some degree it's so. It's, it's, uh, people start treating us differently, uh, pushing us to, okay, Pop, you know, <clears throat> have a seat, you know, let us get on with the real thing here. Uh, and we're not taking it seriously, or we're given a certain kind of respect, but it's on the sidelines somewhere. Or we can't do what we're used to doing, our capacities start to depart, weaken. We can't run as fast. We can't lift things as, much, as well. Uh, we tire more easily. Our memory starts to show signs of weakening. And we get very, very frightened. Now, no one is saying that if you uh, meditate, you won't get frightened or you won't care. But the practice is to practice with those, with those materials. And what is being said is that the suffering uh, there may be some pain involved as you get older, as the bo body develops uh, creaks and, you know, all the things, arthritis and all the things that happen along with age, and we can improve that, minimize it through healthy living and what we now call lifestyle. It's not saying don't do that, but it's inevitable that uh, the body has one direction. That's the way it's going. And sooner or later, people look in the mirror and see that they've changed. They've moved into a different status altogether. And they can tell by how people treat them. They can tell by how they look. They can tell by seeing an old photograph of themselves. And then how we relate to that fact varies from person to person. Now, the fact is incontrovertible. It's the way of the body. 
it's the nature of bodies to age. There's nothing we can do about it. Turning that into torment or suffering is extra. That's up to you. You have the option not to do that. So it's good news for those of you who are young. Enjoy being young, but understand you don't have forever with whatever young is for you, and it's okay. I don't know whatever I'm considered to be. It's not all bad news. I'll tell you, a lot of nonsense falls away as you get older. If you take reasonable care of yourself, I don't know what all the fuss is about. It's okay. You just don't bother with a lot of junk that you did when you were much younger. What a relief, finally. So the practice uh, is, it's the same practice for those of you who are, I'm assuming, as I look around, most of you are yogis and practitioners of of Vipassana meditation. Uh, It's observing bodily sensations, the stiffness in a knee, uh, whatever the uh, events are or uh, elements of experience are that are then taken to be a sign of aging and then the mind somehow concludes from this that, oh my God, I'm getting older, and then uh, that thought uh, sends a whole biochemical uh, process into action, and before we know it, uh, we're uh, depressed and in sorrow. It means I am getting old. It's, the, it's me again. That's, of course, going to turn out to be the problem throughout everything. The Buddha uh, once gave the most, he said this many, many times, but it was very, very briefly, just what is it you're teaching, for God's sakes? He said, okay, the brief thing, it's finally, uh, att- don't attach to anything whatsoever as being me or mine. Uh, if you understand that, you've understood the whole teaching. If you practice it, you've done the whole practice. If you accomplish it, you fully accomplish what this is about. Because the attachment to, to mind states, possessions, anything, the mind can latch on to anything. Uh, and identifying with it, using it as the materials, nourishment to build up a sense of me. And then once you have me, then of course you have mine, and you have you, and we're all doing it. Uh, that's, that's where the suffering comes in that the Buddha is talking about that is optional, that can be, through insight, can insightfully be seen and let go of. That's what makes the practice worth doing. Whereas what is being suggested, in no uncertain terms if you read the suttas, is that there's a huge amount of human suffering that's unnecessary. And it's because of ignorance. We literally don't see things straight. We're intelligent, we're educated, it seems like we know what's going on, and yet when you start meditating, calming the mind, learning how to see without a seeing that's pure, that's cleansed of all the knowledge we've accumulated, all the opinions and likes and dislikes, like a, a, a clear mirror, uh, it's a different world out there, not only out there, right in here. So, the application of the practice is meant to be directed to, the, to whatever it is that aging means for you. It's going to be different for each person. Now, there are specific contemplations that I've mentioned. Uh, personally, what has been most rich for me in my own life, what uh, I've enjoyed teaching the most, and by the way, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to teach. We, we also have a practice group that does this once a year, because the questions or the issues that people bring up are, you know, 
my, my mother is dying. You know, I have cancer. You can't just throw out a, a Dharma, you know, buzzword. You know, see it as impermanent, uh, empty, and uh, not self. Uh, uh, you can, but it's very hollow. So, uh, but what I found is the reflections are very useful. Uh, the guided meditations are useful. The guided meditations on visualizing the body decomposing. Some of you may know them. Uh, it's not an exercise in morbidity. Where you, it's true. That is, the body. Uh, this they used. It was done in ancient times with real bodies, decomposing corpse, corpses. In our times, we can uh, accomplish some of the same value, or the same ends through uh, uh, reflection, visualization, uh, understanding that this body will at some point starts to not only die but decompose, and it's not designed to make you depressed. Uh, and this kind of practice isn't for everyone, at any time. It, it needs to be right for you, or don't really. It's not wise to take it on. But what it's designed to do is to help you wake up to the nature of the body so that you don't attach to it as being me or mine. When you understand that this is how bodies are, this is what happens, this is not an opinion or an ideology. And if you can get comfortable with that, it's very, very liberating and frees up a lot of energy that we didn't even know we were, that was contained, held captive by fear and by avoidance and by escape and uh, denial and so forth. Okay, so uh, what I'm trying to say is, for me personally, what has been most helpful, I've done a lot of these reflections, and I, over the two, or th two years or so, I've told you about some of the things that I've learned from my own teachers in working with uh, uh, this area, and uh, I'm really grateful, very, very helpful. But finally, the best teacher for me has been life itself, not any formal reflection. But things happen all the time to the people that we care about. And we have an opportunity to learn from that or not. It's a little bit like this. This is the difference I see. Uh, many of you do metta, and metta is a wonderful practice. I have a hunch you all know that. It's very, very useful. But think of it this way. When we do metta in a formal way, it's sort of May I be happy, may I be peaceful, may I be free from suffering. And then we move it up and finally, may all beings be happy, may all beings... And we just beam out love, and if you have a big heart, and if you've done this for a while, it's tremendous amount of love is just sent out to the universe and to the galaxy. You know, it's just wonderful. But it's different than when you walk into Central Square. You know, and say, may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful. But the person who cuts ahead of you and elbows you out of the way and, you know, grabs something and runs away, or so, it's not that you shouldn't do formal meditation practice, but graduation is in Central Square. <laughs> uh, because otherwise, it's really relatively easy, I think, to send love to the stars. You know, may all beings be happy. But how about your wife, or your child, or your, your friend, or your boss? I mean, really, face to face. I don't mean in a cozy meditation hall. Okay. Well, death's a little like that aging, sickness, and death, I've found. The reflections are very, very useful. Um, and central square here is when someone in your family or someone you love dies, when someone takes their life, when someone uh, is in a, an, a, an accident and is very seriously injured for the rest of their life, when someone contracts a, a fatal illness, 
uh, the formal practices that we do can be helpful, helping you be better prepared to deal with it. But finally, when it comes, uh, it's something new, and it uh, challenges us in a way that we're that can be very, very new. Hopefully, the practice that you've done in a formal sense can soften the challenge a bit and help you be a lot more prepared to do it. But finally, it will be what is happening in our life, actually, that uh, needs to be met fully and experienced in an intimate and direct way and learn from and let go of. Okay, so some of what we went over was uh, actual cases of uh, aging and how you can practice with it. The basic uh, idea is not complicated. It's just if you have any unnecessary or extra suffering, or just let's not judge it, any suffering around your aging, um, then meditate with that. Don't say, if only this were, if this weren't here, I could really sit. Could really, that means you could really get calm, but it is here. And it's not trivial. It's a very, it's a very fundamental part of your life for all of us. And so strengthen the mind, calm it, uh, do, do all the things that uh, really help us in our on retreats and so forth. But if you can, I would begin to, even just little by little, tiptoe towards it. If you are more bold, then get right into it and practice with your fear of aging. When we're sick, when we grow ill. I got interested in this uh, quite a while ago, even before these other things, when I noticed in interviews that Among the more serious meditators, people who've been practicing for a long time, had done lots of retreats, studied, really uh, were into it, as we say, really loved the practice of doing it. And then I wouldn't see them for a while and say, oh, well, I had this illness, I was sick for about three weeks or a month. And, and I would ask what I thought was a harmless question. Because this is an, a, an urban center, we, as you, most of you know who come to interviews, we try to relate Dharma principles to what your life is. We don't confine it, Dharma, to the hall, although it includes the hall. And I found that um, they didn't practice when they were sick. And I, I was surprised. How come? Uh, <clears throat> my own training took that for granted. That is, of course, when you're sick, uh, they would actually, look, it's best to be healthy. But should you wind up being sick, the teaching I received over and over again in Korea, in Japan, in Thailand, was that since you are sick, wonderful. All those other people have to do a job and, you know, tear out the garbage and mop and clean and all. You have an excuse now. You're in bed and all, all and uh, you can have a retreat there. You know, don't let on. I mean, because people won't take such good care of you. But you have a, a wonderful opportunity. It's not bad news. You've got a retreat. And even if you're lying there, uh, practice with what it's like. Practice with what the body is like. If there's some discomfort or pain, or if the mind feels discouraged or disappointed, or you, know, you can either just uh, veg out by watching television for 20 hours, you know, or uh, reading, whatever. Um, and of course, rest. Do the things that will get you healthy, uh, recover. But don't waste this opportunity. And my teacher saw it as both aging, sickness, and death even more, as chock full of energy. In other words, these situations, because they're so undesirable, because we don't like them, we don't want them to be here, and yet they're in our face. We all, we must age, we must grow ill, we must die, so it's, it's here. 
It's not out there. And the practice is about learning how to establish intimacy, non-separation with all things, most important with yourself, with nature, with people. But if you don't do it with yourself, you won't, it won't amount to, to anything. And to me, practice is all about that, letting go of separation by seeing separation. So, there's a, a, a contradictory structure, in a sense. I'm generalizing, it doesn't apply to you, I apologize. These aspects of living, like death, they're so existentially profound and universal that they're right here. So they're already in us, they're, they're already intimate. The fact that we don't want them, we kind of delegate them out there somewhere, psychologically. Uh, we're pushing away something that's already very close to us. The practice is see, dissolving that and becoming intimate with fear of aging, becoming intimate with your ailment, if you have it, at whatever degree of ailment and whatever degree of ailment you have. In other words, it's going against the grain. It's, it's only natural to want to escape from these things, to distract yourself all of us. The practice, though, is in some ways, to begin with, until you see the value of it, really see it for yourself, not because some teacher said so, um, there's just tremendous value in practicing with it rather than avoiding it. All the energy that we waste in avoidance and denial, if that energy were brought together and directed at what it is that we're running away from or not willing to look at, uh, we have abundant the mind can really be on fire with attention and burn through a lot of the problems that we have which don't go away because we never really face them directly. We're just master, master Houdinis, escape artists. Okay, with illness, so it's the same thing. Uh, don't get ill, take good care of yourself. But if you do get ill, there's a, a totally different attitude. Take the Dharma attitude. Use that time uh, when you may have more free time when you're uh, even lying in bed, uh, use it as an opportunity uh, to practice in a soft way. It's not to push yourself. Uh, we're getting closer now, right? Now we're up to death. I should uh, make a direct link here that I didn't make. I apologize. The fourth messenger. Remember there are four messengers, aging, an old person, a uh, sick person, a dead person, and a meditating person. Okay, uh, the message of the story—it's not, or there is a hap, It's not all bad news. Or it's, it's often presented, uh, even when you read it in Buddhist texts: aging, sickness, and death. Aging, sickness, and death. Uh, but take someone like Ajahn Mahabua, some uh, Buddha Dasa. Some of you have read his books, and I learned a tremendous amount from him. And he was over and over again would say. Aging, sickness, and death is suffering, but that's only for people who don't understand. There's no aging, sickness, and death is suffering. What is happening is the body is getting old. The body is getting sick. The body is going to die. Aging, sickness, and death. Uh, we identify with the, with the body, therefore we suffer at the aging. We identify with the body as, uh, this is me who's getting sick. This is me who's getting older. And then finally, this is me, Larry the Great, who's going to die. The per that person who the whole universe is organized around to, to service me. Okay, so 
our practice is really, of course, dissolving those identifications. So no one's denying that the body must go on this journey and there may be pain involved. That's different. There may be not much we can do with that. We may have to take uh, medical help to control the pain. That's not what the Buddha is pointing to is um, what you could call torment or uh, mental anguish. It's that part that we add to it when we identify with the body and then we make, I am old, I am sick, and I'm going to die. And that is what's terrifying. So the cutting edge of the practice is to undercut, cut through, insightfully, to see into and through, uh, to transform this, for most of us, normal way of relating to things as being, this is me and this is mine. This is who it's happening to. It's not easy to do, because our starting point is very deep conditioning that of self. No question about that. Uh, but that's what the practice is. And it's not that you try to be someone who doesn't identify with aging, sickness, and death. It's that when it comes up, you practice with it. You see it. And you take the power out of it through clear seeing. Okay, now, the death part is a little different. Okay, I really want to have a fair amount of time for questions, but I think I can finish my side here in about maybe five minutes, maybe a little longer. And if any of you have to leave, it's not rude, just it's okay. Um, all the others, aging, sickness, and death, are something that's happening to us right now. You can actually be aware of it. Okay. So the suffering that comes from death, when you look at it, a lot of it is not the actual death in, in these practices. It's uh, the idea of death is what makes us suffering, because in a, in a certain literal sense, we're not dying right now, right now at this moment. Yeah. Uh, at some point, we will be, and it will be in a moment just like this. It will be very real. Just as you can feel your breath and your body right now and look around, there will be a moment when we will be dying. Now, the Vipassana approach to this is to master the moment. Essentially, that's so much of what we're learning. Mindfulness of this, mindfulness of that, mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. Okay, so learning how to live and learning how to die are really not different. They're exactly the same thing. Because all the dying is, it's a name we give to when those moments are the last moments that will be here, and we know it. We find out about it. So the same tools, when I asked uh, uh, Munindra, who is a teacher of many of us at IMS, uh, what the best way to uh, prepare for, uh, for death was, and I asked him this over 20 years ago, um, he said nothing, to, he didn't even mention any of these reflections, which he knew about. He says the best thing is just your Vipassana practice just as it is. Because if your awareness is really steady, and that comes through practice, it's not something that's handed to us, then it's a challenge of practicing in this situation, with this body that is aging and on the way to dying, with this mind, and so forth. Uh, it's a little late if you find out that you have a couple of days and say, uh, when's the next retreat? I think I'll sign me up for this Vipassana stuff so I can have a peaceful death. Uh, it isn't magic. It's blue-collar work all the way. <laughs> Laboring in the vineyards, if you want to use another tradition. Um, so a lot of what these practices are about is not about the actual time of death, but the fear that we have of death now, even when you're very young, you can have fear of death. Some people have it when they're very young, as children. 
they have fear of death so, for whatever reason. And so the practice then uh, enables you to see the difference between the idea of death, seeing that the mind, through thinking, and thinking, of course, unexamined thinking causes a lot of our suffering, the unnecessary part, beginning to see that the mind invents a future. It's a real one, but the mind invents one where uh, I won't be here. And it is terrified. And so that's what you would practice with. But also, when the actual time of dying comes for us, if we're fortunate enough to have practiced, there are no guarantees for anyone. And we're not, uh, and the mind has some degree of uh, clarity, independent of how the body is doing, then it's possible to have an easier death. It's possible uh, to even die at peace. Now, there have been many historical examples of it. And have I seen any real people do it? Yes. One of my good friends, uh, relatively young, 50, uh, who'd been practicing Zen and this very hard for many years. We started out together in India and all over the place. And uh, it was extraordinary to see how he handled his last weeks and days. And uh, it was awesome, as the kids say now. Uh, but he, that's because he had a lifetime of practice. And he was actually helping us, his wife and myself and other close friends, helping us to, hey, ease up. I'm okay. I know what's happening. I'm prepared for it. I'd rather be around and stay with all of you, but it, it's obvious that I don't have very long. The doctors have told me the truth. I've already worked through the denial phase. Don't add to it by relating to me in some fictitious way. You know, I know what's happening and I know what to do and I'm doing it. I saw it. So if one person can do it, perhaps we can do it. Okay, so there are many, many practical benefits that come from this. The fourth messenger, the message is that, uh, that uh, although these bodies must age, etc., uh, the fourth messenger was serene and at peace. Uh, that's serenity and peace in the Buddhist sense doesn't come from just a concentrated mind. Uh, if it does, it's fragile. Because as soon as your concentration is gone, then uh, you're foolish again. So it comes from wisdom and deep understanding. And so the fourth messenger is really uh, a helping hand that's been uh, extended to us by the Buddha and all the countless practitioners over the centuries who are saying, uh, there is help. You're not helpless. But in order to help yourself, you're going to have to learn about your own mind. Because it's your mind, include heart, that you don't understand that's oppressing you. And it's oppressing you in small ways, even without aging, sickness, and death. You don't need these big ones. So why wouldn't it, why would it go away when you're old, sick, and, and dying? Of course it's going to be there, and perhaps even worse. So the fourth messenger is, um, so it's happy, it's kind of Hollywood. It's a happy ending. Um, one last uh, suggestion, because I don't know where you are in terms of people in your lives. Um, what I've seen, uh, these teachings, uh, I've seen these teachings be helpful in a very concrete way to people with illness long before they're dying. Uh, and sometimes it's not themselves, but it's helped them grieve for others who have died, or it's helped them 
uh, be really constructive with people who are suffering a lot in their family, who don't have these tools, who don't meditate. Uh, and so, over the years, I would say many of the questions, sometimes I think most, uh, turn out to be not so much about me, but about how do I help my aunt? How do I uh, be at the bedside of my father? How do I? But it always turns out that the best way to help someone else is to know your own mind. Or because you can't help your aunt or your father if it makes you upset and you're like this, you're going to bring that. You can do a, an impersonation of a calm person. But usually that's not too convincing, especially to people who are uh, in that condition. Often they're very, very uh, savvy. Um, what I have personally found most helpful, read the texts, study them, do the practices, because they help. Uh, finally, what has helped me the most in many challenging situations with family members and friends who, who have died or had serious things happen to them, however you get to it, whatever helps you have a clear mind, whether you want to call it beginner's mind, don't know mind. Uh, in fact, it can be destructive if you're so uh, dipped in Dharma teachings that, you don't, that the mind isn't clear. In other words, the mind can be uh, obfuscated. It's left over from a previous lifetime, that word from I haven't used it in a long time. Uh, by Buddhist teachings, if it gets between you and the intimate experience of the person who's dying. So uh, practice can help you develop a clear mind. That's what we're talking about over and over and over again. So that finally, uh, I would say that is what uh, one of the, the main fruit that comes out of this. Let me give you an example, and then we'll let liberate people. And uh, those of you who want to stay, I'll be happy to go for a while. Uh, my mother and my father. So you know that the, this, this isn't, uh, uh, this is Central Square. Uh, I love them both. Uh, both were wonderful parents. So no unfinished business, fortunately. I mean, there was a, a lifetime of devotion from them to me, and I hope they felt it for me. Um, with my mother, uh, she was dying, and at her bedside, um, the nurses were amazed that she was supposed to have died uh, two weeks ago, and she kept holding on, holding on, holding on. I checked into a hotel near the hospital, this is in Northampton, and uh, came every day. Uh, and she just kept being alive, you know, and not that we were disappointed, the nurses maybe a little bit. Uh, they had it all figured out. Uh, but then it got to the point, she'd had a stroke, she couldn't speak. She was very, very clear. But she, uh, we spoke through kind of hand signals, squeeze my hand once if you, if you want more water, uh, squeeze it twice if you don't. So she was quite coherent, but incapacitated dramatically. And breathing, the breathing became very belabored to the point where the family, we were all gathered around her. Uh, it was exhausting just to be, because she had to work so hard for each breath. Just, it was uh, exhausting. And so uh, I have my little Dharma books with me, reading them in the hotel, Ajahn Chah and How to Die, and you know, just for some support, reinforcement for what I already knew. And this one time, uh, I was holding her hand, 
and also in, uh, stroking her and saying, um, Mom, uh, it, the, the nurses were saying it's a matter of hours. It, it wasn't. It went for another four or five days. You know. uh, your body has served you well. It's worn out now. It's time to let it go. Everything's all right. We're okay. You're okay. Uh, just let it go. Every time I mention anything like letting go or synonym for it, her hand got tighter. Uh, and then I would say another word that meant something like letting go or drop it or just go with it. And eventually, I don't know where she got the strength. She was totally feeble. Uh, you know, I felt she was going to crush my hand. But I wasn't getting it. I was giving her a standard Dharma wrap to someone who was not a meditator. And she just wanted to keep living and be with her family. And so finally, duh, I got it. And I just, went, I slipped into meta. And instead, I dropped all this letting go, everything's impermanent, the body has its own nature, all the stuff I've been saying tonight. <laughs> Completely worthless. <laughs> uh, so I'm holding her hand, and I said, Mom, you've been a very loving person. You've been a great mother and a great friend to so many people. Uh, and as I said that, a little smile, she couldn't smile very much, forced it, and her hand relaxed, and I said, we all love you, we feel your love, and we're just... And that was good teaching, but it didn't come from a book. It came from, in a sense, stupidity. And uh, it took a while to see it. This person, this is not, if the mind is clear, my mind was not so clear. It wouldn't have needed to go through that. And what it took was, uh, I think, partially pain and also saying, this is not working. Uh, to get an obvious fact, why would my mother go along with that? There were no signs at all of her accepting impermanence or any of the Buddhist teaching. That was not her background at all. And so that was very, very helpful. So not, not literally for you, but uh, see if you can come to situations which are dire with a fresh mind. You'll find that you're, you have so much more wisdom than you ever dreamed. Another one was my father who had Alzheimer's. And uh, for the first four, five, six months, every time I would visit him, uh, he was in the 90, both my parents died at 90. Um, he had Alzheimer's, and my way, as soon as I found that out, I read everything, every book, booklet, you know, on Alzheimer's. I was the world's expert. I, I want to understand what happened to my father. Sounds nice. So I went in there, and uh, it was difficult to adjust to someone who was an extremely alert person and very uh, astute to someone who was not making any sense. And that's no fun in any case, as you can all imagine. If you know it firsthand, you know what I'm talking about. But there was something else I felt that was very unsatisfying, and I didn't know what it was. It took me a while. And I realized that some of what happened that I had created a thin film of, a, I would call it, diagnostic uh, ooze <laughs> between him and myself. And I was seeing him as an Alzheimer's person, you know, and, uh, and saying, yeah, that's, he does that. That's right. You know, this is... Uh, and it was intimacy of practice. Intimacy here would mean even this skillful thought, you know, about the disease itself. If it's between you and the person, probably isn't as helpful. There may be a time for it now and then. But in this situation of just visiting one-on-one, -on -one, as soon as I dropped that and let go of all that, anything that I knew about Alzheimer's, there he was again. There I was. You know, it was just, it was intimate. It was just, he was making no sense. But he was still my father, and I felt the connection again. 
And I didn't even realize that I had used ideas, medical ideas, to, as a barrier between myself and him. Well, the examples are endless, and I have many of them. I'm not going to you know, go on. That's enough. Uh, but if you're in a situation like this for yourself or with people in your life, uh, a fresh mind, a clear and fresh mind, which the practice is designed to help us with, is um, uh, the most wonderful resource you can come to it. And you'll find that you're quite brilliant inside. There's a wisdom and organic intelligence when the mind is quiet. It just knows what's right and what to do and what not to do. So, um, let's see. Okay. Why don't we just uh, sit for 30 seconds or so, a minute? And then uh, those of you who need to leave, it's fine. And everyone else, if you want to stay. If anything was of any value, let it sink in. May we all learn to relate to the condition of our body. In an easy and peaceful and loving way. May it save us from so much unnecessary suffering. Okay, thank you for your attention. That's the end of no more talks on this on Wednesdays. if you have to leave, it's fine. Those of you who can stay a little bit longer, we're going to just talk now, whatever's on your mind, if anything. Uh, but if you decide to stay, you can get up and leave at any time. So it won't, it's not rude. Okay. Those of you who want to leave, please. Okay. Not many people are leaving then. Um, anything we can talk over together? If you want to stand, maybe that is cool. You, some of you have been sitting for two hours. If you want to stand and just wiggle and stretch, please do so, and then we'll start in again. What can we talk over together? Anything? Please. that I've noticed for a while, you know, you know, just by doing the practice as you've suggested it, and uh, I think I read an article um, in some magazine somewhere, you know, with you, and you know, and, and so I saw that a while ago. I'm, I'm sorry, and magazine. You know, the practice um, as you've described. Oh yes. Talk, I think it was in Tricycles a long time ago, something like that. But at any rate, the thing that I've noticed really is, and I don't know if this is how it makes it easier to get tricked into thinking you're not going to die, but there is a part, like the mind doesn't feel like it's any older or younger or something. You know, and that's the thing I've noticed a lot. Um, to me, it's not as, it's more relaxed than it was when I was younger, but it doesn't feel any older. Okay, awareness isn't older. Awareness doesn't get older. Not the preliminary, tentative kind of mindfulness we struggle with as we begin with. 
where there's a place of knowing, and that's that's where the practice is going, that it doesn't get older. That it's like a clear mirror. It it will reflect age. You know, you can take this as theory if you like, because until you verify it for yourself, it is theory. Um, so uh, that that may not be so terrible, but does anything ever come up about your aging or, or you know these things? Um, well, the thing what I've noticed about well the thing that really has come up is really actually that the rock I have a uh, uh, compost bin and dirt comes out at the bottom and the, somehow or other the realization that this body has to die in order for life to continue. I mean. If we didn't die, there wouldn't be any life. If things didn't die, there wouldn't be dirt, nothing else would grow up. And somehow the connection between those two just at least gives me some faith that there is something that's deathless and that the body dying isn't a bad thing. So it's not like I'm free of anxiety about But dying. does it bring up anxiety, ever? Well, it, it certainly at first when I reflected on it, you know, it, it did definitely bring up Were you able to practice with it? Yeah. Okay, now the other part, though, to back up a moment, uh, when you feel that, well, I'm not aging, I don't feel like I'm uh, at all, that can also be the delusion that I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, I'm, there, you know, one is clear mind, which is, it has no beginning or end. It's not, it doesn't get born or it doesn't die. And that, there is, until you taste it yourself, you have to, you don't have to, but be, you may want to take it on faith. Okay, but then there's another, which is a, a very common human characteristic, which is, uh, it's, I'm the same person. What do you, you, we don't feel it. We don't, it doesn't seem real to us. So, but sensitivity can um, discern the difference between just clear seeing and a nice comfy mind state that uh, doesn't know, want to know about any of this. In the Bhagavad Gita, uh, I forgot who says it, Arjuna, I'm not sure. Anyone here can help me? Okay, it's, we had some, okay. The Westerners know about the Gita, and the Indians don't anymore. All right. Um, well, he says, the strangest thing in life is how it's possible to see everyone around you dying and still not realize that it's going to happen to you as well. So it doesn't surprise me. But see, this is designed to throw a, a monkey wrench into the system and stir things up. But also, life stirs things up. Has it ever happened just naturally? Yeah. It can have come at any time. A plane crash, a movie, anything can do it. Did you practice with it? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I that's the key. Yeah. I think that, I guess the part I was uh, bring up was just the part you were talking about at the end. There's an easy part for it to slip into that, that part that is clear seeing can easily slip into that delusion. Then it's not See, clear seeing anymore. Yeah, yeah, it does change, but it sort of comes from the same place. I don't, that's the part I. Kind of me. Well, the clouds have obscured uh, the moon, you know, or the clear, uh, and so at that point, the awareness is not uh, is not uh, where you're at anymore, but it's thoughts, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe a, a glimmer of some. There's always there's some mindfulness, but it's a, it's over it's um, overwhelmed by emotion or thought or notions or imagery or what have you. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's like a well, maybe this will help you. What is being said uh, in the teachings? Uh, Ajahn, Mua, Ajahn Mahabhu in, 
It's either in uh, Straight from the Heart or books in our library. Uh, as at the time of death, if the person has a really strong practice, uh, it's very, very clear that uh, everything is dying but not the awareness. So uh, we're, you know, we're not in that state yet to test ourselves. So I don't know what will happen with me. I'm not uh, arrogant or cocky enough to just say, of course, that I would like to die. I'm not, I don't agree with Woody Allen. Uh, I am afraid of death and I want to be there when it happens. But I want to be equipped to be there in a way I'm not looking to make myself uh, bewildered and terrified. I mean, I, so, and it's not like I'm doing this in order to someday when death comes and I'll be up to it. Because the same training that's good for life is also good for death. That's what I mean by it's mastery of the moment. Uh, because our Buddhist psychology is a psychology of momentariness. And life is lived out. Have you noticed? There's no past or future really. It's just now. It's all there's ever going to be. So the same training carries over. And we'll, we'll find out, all of us, graduation day, when, when it happens. But uh, I would say that's wonderful that you're remembering the practice. Because often, even very committed practitioners at those moments practice in the mothballs. You know, just, uh, it's very easy to lose it then because it's a very powerful uh, mood that, that catches hold of you or pain. Oh, good. Lord Krishna said it? Good, thank you. To Krishna. To, okay, thank you. So you have some connection to your roots, good. It's tenuous, it's just one little, little uh, but it's still there, I'm glad to see that. I've always felt strange, uh, I actually was working with uh, a few years ago. I used to know a fair amount about the Gita. I studied it for five very intense years. Uh, and I had a, a number of Indians who would come and here I am, this Jewish guy from Brooklyn. What am I? I felt so, uh, what am I doing, you know? What are they doing? <laughs> what are we doing? It's just all so stu stupid, you know? But it, only in America. I mean, it's quite sensible. Anything, you know, you need a scorecard now to figure out who's who. Anyway, anything else? Please. Um, it's hard for me, the aging and the sickness in the body, and I understand that mm -hmm. even when one is this practice of, of getting the awareness. Of awareness. Yeah. Attention. Yeah. But I mean, uh, it seems to me also in the practice that there are many other groups to recognize death. Yes. Okay. Like what? Well, um, emptiness and. And Can you be concrete so it isn't yes. just a... Um, because since Christmas and the high vikula of the season has been over, I've noticed personally that Dandelion has been very quiet and very simple. Unlike anything that I've experienced for a long time, and I've gotten to like that. Mm -hmm. And no materials or it's just everything is a lot simpler and I felt, gee, it would be okay to just kind of go out like this. Mm -hmm. So that's, I, mean, I just mean, and I mean, I'm really looking that simply, but in my imagination, I okay. see an awareness of being so simple as to just be my body. Kind of okay, what I would call that would be um, a skillful, it would be a wise reflection. That's in the Buddhist language. It would be considered wise reflection. 
if you want to, there's a book, um, the Tibetan, it's not the Tibetan book of, of living and dying, it's a book on Tibetan views of, uh, of death. We have it in our library, not our full libraries in storage, but you know, when we go back. Uh, and in it, there's a, a, a very uh, extraordinary, beautiful poem by the seventh Dalai Lama. And in it, each uh, set of four lines is a reflection on different things that my mind taught turns to the thoughts of death. A ripe fruit hanging from a tree, just about to fall off. I see it, I see the, uh, my, my mind, my heart turns to the thoughts of my own death. And so uh, the teachings are wherever you look, really. And not, you know, there are lots of people walking around not learning that the way you did. And so now the question is what you do with it, you know? And you have found it helpful, it sounds like. Okay. But you're not strictly speaking dying right now. But maybe. Ironically, I feel more alive than ever. Mm-hmm. But life seems also extensively pared down before. Well, uh, but you see, uh, like shining the light of death on life, uh, oh, and that's what the phrase we've been using. Uh, you could, if you want to elaborate on that, it would be kind of on the art of being fully alive. And so whatever helps you wake up uh, to this incredible life that we are all living, which uh, doesn't seem to be sometimes, so uh, we're so, um, obs- it's so obstinately familiar, and we do so many things over and over and over again that we become, we're sleepwalking. And of course, that's the whole thrust of the practice. Uh, Buddha is someone who's awakened, and it isn't just now and then. You know, it's a, another dimension has opened up, and it's possible for us to, to some degree or another. That's why we sit for hours on end and walk and listen to talks like this, and, you know, there are more fun things to do, right? Yeah. But that's, that's a, a skillful use of it, certainly. Yeah. Anything can help you. Uh, in my own case, an old movie, night from 1930s, of uh, seeing the film one night, and just for what I was in a place where I could learn from it, I'm not always there. Uh, everyone in the, in the film was dead, and I knew it. I knew all of them, and they were in the prime of life. You know, Clark Gable was, you know, and uh, I've forgotten who, and everyone was, you know, lusty and vigorous, and the music, and the. Uh, I knew who the director was, and I knew who wrote, and I knew that they were, everyone there was dead. The entire, probably, you know, people selling popcorn. I don't know if they did sell popcorn then. I think it's more recent. But anyway, and I looked at it. And the modern world has certain teaching tools, which other, you know, sort of amazing. They're right in front of you. You're watching everyone here, and they're, they're prancing around like they're going to be there forever. And you're looking at them, dead, dead, orchestra, dead, you know. Uh, uh, and for some reason, that particular time, it was like an arrow went right in here. It doesn't always happen. I just was very receptive that night. Yeah. Please. Exactly. Okay, that's perfectly put. Now, uh, do you do this practice to some? Degree? Yeah. 
Okay, uh, the fact that your body is 70 years old is not, you know, probably have a birth certificate and everything to confirm. Yes, okay. And your body is this kind of a 70-year-old body. Someone else's could be a, you know, more tired, less tired, etc. That's a problem for me because I, since I compare myself to okay. that 70-year-old body, <laughs> Right, but can you see how it's really the mind? Okay, so what to do? Uh, the, that's what I mean. The practice is not easy, but it's also simple. So that let's say when that comes upon you, uh, let's say you feel what fear or discouragement or what? Do you have a word? What would you? Discouragement. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that's what you practice with. Now uh, that assumes that maybe you've had practice already, enough practice, so that it's not so novel for you to turn to things that are not so comfortable. Uh, you know, it starts off when you first meditate. You're encouraged, well, if you have a pain in your knee, just, uh, just observe it, be mindful of it. You don't want to hear that, but eventually you learn how to do it. So you can learn how to see that the mind is making up a scenario about the body, which includes comparison. And there's a general Dharma law, comparison equals suffering. Uh, if you've been in the university, I spent a lot of years in the university, you, you know, if you have a PhD, you've gotten a PhD in comparison. Everything you do is comparing that's how you get promoted, that's your, your literary, you know, pointing out this jerk didn't do a good job, but your thing is much better, and that theory is outmoded, and you know, it's sort of like, and then people reward you for it. Uh, but then you also do it with your colleagues, with yourself, and then everyone's doing it to everyone, not realizing we've made hell on earth, you know, by doing that, so n nothing personal. But all of these things can be attended to, and in the light of awareness, they lose their power so that your body would still be a 70-year-old body, but it is possible for you to let go, to, to let go of that. But the letting go comes from the letting be. It's not to, demo to demolish them, because then that would be repression or denial. So when those thoughts and feelings come up, and they probably express themselves in the body too, as even more tired, those thoughts tire you out. Okay? If you can practice with that, they'll start to lose their power, and then uh, the body will still be 70, but I have a hunch that you'll be more, you'll be happier. At least the, the possibility is there. I've seen it. It can be done. You can do it. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you about it if you're trying to let me know if this is all just a bunch of BS or it really helps you. Yes? Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with this so we can get a reinforce it. Uh, no, let me give you a case, an actual case from a yogi. It's similar. Someone comes into an interview here, not here, 331 Broadway, and uh, is totally depressed. What's the problem? I woke up this morning and both my knees felt so stiff. I said, yeah, okay, so, well, so. said, And immediately my mind uh, turned that into a scenario, which is, oh my God, I'm getting older, I'm going to get old. And then, then that just took off. And, that paint, and then a whole uh, scenario was painted called proliferation, uh, where I'm getting older, I'm getting less attractive, no one will want to... You know, and before you knew it, this person might as well have been uh, in a nursing home, even though she was 50, 51, 52, the most. Okay, so this is dangerous stuff, you know, what this mind when you don't understand it. It's, uh, it's your worst enemy. If you do understand it, it's your best friend. I didn't, the Buddha said that. Okay. So, um, 
what would you do? Let's say if we run the film back, okay? You wake up in the morning and, oh, wow, okay? You go right to the stiffness. Now, if you're real, if you've been practicing a long time and you totally zero in on the stiffness, the power of the concentration is such that you may not even have any thoughts. It's sort of like the attention breaks the momentum of the proliferating mind. But for the moment, let's assume that the thoughts start coming up, you know, sort of like, oh my God, thoughts. What's going to happen to me? And so forth. I'm getting older. Okay. Practice would be understanding that those are thoughts. Uh, so some of it is, t- is, excuse me, is teaching. There's, it's not just to stare an empty, vacant gaze at, uh, at, at, what, at the pain. Uh, some of it is some reflection and teaching, at least at the beginning, might be helpful. For example, does this sound, have you practiced much? Yeah, but would you say you're a beginner? Yeah, I mean, I knew that. I was just being polite. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, see if this is true. Check it out with your own experience. You can think about it now and see if it makes sense, but what, that won't help you too much. What will help you is if you see, you dig it out of your own life you, as you live, that an enormous amount of fear uh, including, you know, what we're talking about, comes out of the, the soil that it grows out of is thinking. In other words, the mind uh, makes up an idea about, first of all, even in Buddhist teaching, even the self is just a bunch of notions and representations and images. That's what emptiness means. It's not solid. You won't find that out unless you take a good look. Okay. So the mind makes up a notion of, I'm getting older, and as this person did it, and then that can be accompanied by imaginings about what that means down the pike and you know joyless life isolated uh, incredibly painful ailments rejection uh, no income you know before you know it it's a uh, it's a nightmare and the person had this person had a good job living in a nice place you know I know that because in talking I found it out so the soil out of which this where did this tremendous fear grow from it grew out of unexamined thoughts about the future. The future's not here yet. Now, it doesn't mean that the thoughts are worthless. It might suggest that the fact is you are getting older. And the stiffness, well, maybe it's dietary. Maybe too much uric acid in the system. Maybe you, uh, certain uh, devil's claw herbs can help you. There are things you can do to say, in your case, I've seen you in Bread and Circus, right? <laughs> I caught you. <laughs> you too. Okay. Uh, so there are things that, and do them, but even, when, even if you do them, good chance that the mind has a mind of its own. You know, and no matter how much you heard all this, it doesn't care. You know, and it's going to spin out another melody. So practicing with it would be, uh, first of all, usually the most accessible place to, to practice. With. Anything that's happening to the mind also happens at the same time to the body. It's just, see if it's true. If you have any emotion or a negative thought, it's got to, it may be subtle, but it'll turn up in the body. It's, they're distinguishable, but they're, one, you know, they're quite interrelated. Okay, so you can be, to be with that part of the body, not only the stiffness, but maybe the hunching up and the, and the fear and the discouragement, the tightening of the jaw, the pulse changes, the heart changes, the breath changes. You see what I mean? And then, but what would help you tremendously is if you learn that a thought is just a thought. Did you know that? Did you know that a thought is just a thought? 
It's all it is. A thought is a thought. Now people say, well, yeah, well, what more? There's got to be more to what the guy's saying. It's a ve- if you really got that, you wouldn't need me anymore or CIMC, save your money, but membership and all that, you know, fundraising. Uh, because you'd know the difference between all these ideas about what's happening and what's happening. So, you, so it's the same practice, uh, and it's, um, there's a term uh, called uh, satipanya. It's used in the Thai forest tradition a lot. Sati is mindfulness, and panya is discernment. It's like, it's not just a vacant stare of mindfulness, it's kind of a, a keen interest in, uh, it's investigation. What's going on here? What is this? How did I make so much suffering for myself? Because, I'm sorry, I don't know your name, but uh, you, yeah, but you know, you, you, what I said is not a surprise to you, I can see that. Yeah, yeah. so it's just, it's a matter of, 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 instead of it being a problem, see if you can turn it into something that you have a keen interest to investigate. You know, sort of, uh, it's a challenging thing that, and that's of course what the whole practice, that's the attitude, is we turn everything into a challenge. Uh, in other words, a bad situation, aging, is a good situation, but only if you know how to relate to it in a radically different way, which is now investigate it instead of just uh, believe in it and then fight with it and deny it and then try to correct it or try to adjust to it, stiff upper lip, yes, everyone has to get old, uh, me too, uh, you know, it's so grim and joyless and you'll be exhausted. So awareness is different. It's letting the fear flower or the discouragement, but meeting it with that mirror of mindfulness and discernment, sort of like, what is this? What's happening here? It's not thinking analysis, but a few well-placed thoughts to begin with can help. And then you begin to see, oh, look at that. Uh, it's, my mind has made up this scenario about what's going to happen to me. All that's really happening is I have two stiff knees. It, you see, so, you know, I'm maybe simplifying it a little bit, but uh, you have to practice with each situation in its own, on its own terms. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.